Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Revolution in Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Coming to you from Central Texas. On today's episode, we're discussing military theory and specifically the British military theorist JFC Fuller. Uh, this episode is born out of my own interest in military theory and my general question uh, that I haven't yet been able to answer, and that is, where have all the theorists gone? Uh, it seems at the beginning of the 20th century, and even well before that, you know, you could, depending on how bad you, how bad you, how far back you want to look at this question, military theorists have played an important role in in thinking about war and warfare and foreign policy, uh, for that matter, for hundreds of years. But it seems only recently, uh, probably in the last you know, 50 to 75 years, that military theory and military theorists have gone the wayside. And as I sit and ponder that, I, I, I wonder where have all the military theorists gone. And so to answer that question, I, I first want to dive in and look at some some really good military theory, and I think JFC Fuller, despite all his foibles, uh, uh, you know, later, not even later in life, throughout his life, I think that uh, he is perhaps one of the best and brightest and uh, most forward-thinking military theorists. So with that, we're going to uh, talk a bit today about JFC Fuller, and in particular, uh, do a bit of a deep dive on his book, The Foundations of the Science of War. I think the first and most important thing to understand about J.F.C. Fuller, and I think the biggest thing that I learned from him re- reading his his book, The Foundation of the Science of War, in addition to several other books he's written and uh, his, his several of the papers that he's published, is that it is okay to think. Uh, it is okay to think differently than the institution. And uh, that that idea permeates JFC Fuller's writing and I've softened the blow a bit because the way that he tends to phrase the idea is somewhat more harsh which is perhaps part of the reason uh, his writing did not and doesn't necessarily always um, resonate with institutions and uh, senior leaders within institutional organizations. For instance he writes that the blind, op, uh, the blind adoption of maxims uh, may be summed, summed up as nine-tenths of the art of war. So again, poking institutional thinking and institutional bias as opposed to independent 
and pragmatic solution seeking. He also says there are two main causes for military short-sightedness. The first being the worship of tra traditions, and the second is the incapacity to see the world, uh, the see the world's forces in their true relationship. That I think is perhaps one of the most salient features that uh, JFC Fuller makes, and, and significant contributions he makes. He continues on and says the the discovery of truth calls for brave men, for truth gives nothing to cowards. And so again, this is a bit of that push on the institution, uh, where it you know it takes some guts, it takes some bravery to step forward and uh, question, critique, and disagree with your institution, whatever that may be. Uh, especially when you see that you know there are bigger, better, uh, more effective ideas out there for addressing the problems that your institution exists to address. Fuller also talks about the the shortcomings of uh, individuals within institutions, and I think that's important to uh, to appreciate before you move on too. And then also how that affects uh, doctrine and just the general um, professional language of an organization. And so a couple passages here before uh, before we move on. Fuller says, and I quote: "Before we cross swords with authority, we must understand that an army is not a band of geniuses." but of ordinary, ordinary normal men. Normal man, it should never be forgotten, is a product of fears and not facts. And then he continues on later and says, normal, and I quote, normal man will not think, thinking is purgatory to him. He will only imitate and repeat. Let us turn, therefore, these defects to our advantage. Firm a, gen a mental grip on war that he can place before that we can place before this unthinking creature a system which, when he imitates it, will reflect our intention and attain our goal. Further, uh, he, he says, and this is, I think, probably one of the most uh, salient ideas within this book, he says, and I quote, Method creates doctrine, and a common doctrine is the cement which holds an army together. Though mud is better than no cement, we want the best cement, and we must... Uh, correction, and we shall never get it unless we can analyze war scientifically and understand its values. Those two elements there are scientifically, understanding, analyzing war scientifically and understanding its values, I think is one of JFC Fuller's greatest contributions to the understanding and the study of war and warfare. We have to analyze it scientifically, right? So we got to get past our institutional biases and our anchoring and our indoctrination, if you will. And look at it uh, empirically as best we can to understand what it is that we're trying to do, uh, what it is uh, that certain environments are, and uh, what it is in, in relation to how we're going to have to operate. And in many cases, that, that exceeds the bounds of what we want to do and what we want warfare to be and what we want uh, operating environments to be. And so you have to understand war scientifically to understand its values and the values that in my assessment and how I understand Fuller is more than just uh, you know like cultural norms and things like that values discovering its values means understanding the components and the conditions that each uh, that the analysis of war scientifically examined uh, generates right and so again like we've talked in previous episodes and with previous guests when we talk about maneuver and maneuver warfare Maneuver has certain components and conditions and situations and operating environments in which it is effective. It also has other environments uh, in which it is not effective, right? And if certain components, uh, certain things, you know, aren't present and the conditions aren't ripe for maneuver, nor the environment suited to maneuver, right? So like when we were looking at the death of the Wehrmacht, uh, Robert Satino had said, and I don't remember if I mentioned it specifically in the podcast, but it's in the book. He says that there is no bad tank country. And he was talking about the Wehrmacht's operations uh, during the Second World War, right? Uh, however, uh, being a tank officer, I can assure you that there is bad tank country. And so that gets to one of the things when Fuller's talking about analyzing war scientifically and discovering its values that relationship between a component and its environment, right? 
is one of those values, those inherent values that can or cannot break a method of operating both at the most finite individual level, like the tank operating in restrictive terrain, right? Or, an, or a large scale organization like a field army operating across, you know, a, a certain type of environment. And so that again, just to close on this part here, I think is vitally important to understand. He says, though mud is better than no cement, we want the best cement. And we shall never get it unless we can analyze war scientifically and understand its values. And so for me, that's always been one of the things that I've uh, approached the study of war and warfare from, is that uh, scientific analysis and looking at the values, because I think that that really is the heart of understanding the hows and the whys uh, behind why certain actors operate in certain environments in the way that they do and conversely how you are going to have to operate because I think in many cases those those things I mentioned the components the conditions the situation and the the operating environment itself those have deterministic effect a deterministic impact on how you are going to operate when you get into that situation uh, despite what you want to do, despite your preference, despite your chest beating and saying, I operate this way. Continuing with that line of logic, Fuller has uh, two good lines here that I think are worth uh, carrying forward as well. He says, and I quote, We must liberate our thoughts from customs, traditions, and shibboleths and learn to think freely, not imitatively. Remember that every student has much more to unlearn than to learn, and that he cannot learn freely until he has hoed the weeds of irrational thought out of his head. And this is one of Fuller's big things, is that uh, you, you really have to basically reprogram the mind of uh, military uh, professionals uh, because of the way that they've been indoctrinated to think and approach problems uh, in a military manner. And so the beginning of this book is just all about breaking down, uh, knocking down the walls, and reteaching people how to understand and think about uh, problem solving as it relates to both war and warfare. And moving on to thinking about war uh, more ta uh, tangibly, he says, quote, the world is governed by reason, but by the world is not governed by reason but by the law of causation or of uniformity. That is, similar causes produce similar effects. And then he continues and says that unless we understand the causes of a war, it is unlikely that we shall, from the outset, be able to formulate the object of the war, the attaining of which will lead to the effect required. So cause and effect, you know, I do this, and that causes you know, something else uh, related to that to happen is a central theme to J.F.C. Fuller's uh, arguments and thinking about war and warfare. And he talks about, uh, in effect, he, he talks about, he, he applies a systems thinking, a systems approach uh, to war. So when we talked uh, several episodes ago on the Centers of Gravity um, episode, when we talked about systems theory, systems thinking, and I talked through the two books um, during that episode, General Systems Theory and then... Um, Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows. Uh, you know, we those episodes talked about the interrelatedness of a, a warfighting system and how that uh, has a direct impact on on how the system operates. And JFC Fuller really carries those ideas forward. Um, he didn't even carry them forward, actually. He's one of the first people that I see that writes about that. He doesn't use the, the, the language of systems theory necessarily, uh, but it, the ideas are, are woven through what, he's, what he writes. And he says, uh, to that point, he says, the strongest instinct of a man is that of self-preservation. And I think that that, if you look at a lot of the stuff that I've written, that's one of the first points, a paper I published a while ago on, on principles of war. That was one of the first principles that I talk about is self-preservation, right? Don't die is the first principle of war. And so an actor, because they are open dynamic systems, that's the first thing at the fore of their mind is don't die. And so J.F.C. Fuller, uh, in this book, he, he carries that line of logic forward throughout everything that he, he writes uh, afterwards. 
another important aspect to understand about JFC Fuller and the ideas that he, he puts forward is, uh, again, he doesn't use the language rational actor, right, and rational, rational theory of economic action, um, but it's woven throughout what he thinks about, and I think you can't talk about systems thinking and systems theory without also being an advocate for uh, the idea of rational actors. And a recent book by uh, uh, John Mearsheimer called How States Think addresses uh, the question of rational action pretty good, I think, and I'm going to just quickly jump over to that so that we can get back to Fuller. Uh, Mearsheimer says, Rational decision makers are theory-driven. They employ credible theories to both understand the situation at hand and to best and to decide the best policies for, for achieving their objectives. Mearsheimer continues and says, Rational policymakers are theory-driven. They employ credible theories to make sense of the world and decide the best way to achieve a goal. And then he says that uh, you can call them homo theorectus uh, is a way to classify uh, rational thinking and rational actors in international politics. And the last thing here, Mearsheimer says that I want to highlight, he says that strategic rationality in international relations is all about making sense of the world for the purpose of navigating it in the pursuit of desired goals. So that idea of rationality is what really uh, carries forward in, in the writings of Fuller. And again, it doesn't really carry forward because Fuller wrote this book 100 years before you know, Mearsheimer wrote his. But the idea remains uh, constant there. And so I say that to say, you know, like when we talk about rationality, Fuller and uh, the science of the foundations of war is all about rationality. And to that end, he says, and I quote, In wars originating in economic causes, the object is not to kill, wound, or plunder the enemy, but simply to persuade him by moral and physical pressure that acceptance of this policy will in the end prove more profitable than its refusal. So again, that idea that uh, rationality, that, that actors in war and warfare are rational, uh, comes across in that, in that passage there by Fuller. He continues and says, Wars arising from military causes, frontier security, etc., it is much the same. The object is to remove the military threat with as little injury to the hostile nation as is compatible with its attainment. And so, again, you know, he's talking about a rational approach to war and warfare, the rational application of uh, military capabilities against another military that's applying rational, uh, you know, rational decision-making processes and economic theory of uh, rational action to guide how they're operating in the conduct of war. And that idea, uh, again, continues on uh, as, we, as we continue to move through Fuller's ideas on war and warfare. Fuller also relies on this idea that uh, used to be in vogue in military thinking, but isn't uh, so much in, well, I mean, it's not at all anymore, but the idea of grand tactics. And I, when I read this, I, I think Fuller uh, was really talking about the operational level of war, but that term didn't exist at the time. That idea didn't necessarily exist at the time. And so grand tactics uh, was essentially the idea that they used at the time to explain operational level considerations. And, uh, this is, uh, this is how he describes uh, the, the job of a grand tactician. He says that, quote, he takes, the force, takes over the forces as they are distributed and arranges them according to the resistance they are most likely to meet. And then he continues and says, in war, the object of military action is to compel the enemy to accept the policy in dispute. It accomplishes this by disarming the enemy and occupying his country, which renders it impossible for the government to impose its will on the hostile nation with honor and economy. And that closely mirrors uh, Karl von Clausewitz's object in war when he describes uh, the object of war in his book uh, On War. So with the, uh, the object set as the policy in dispute, uh, he continues and says uh, that grand tactics secure military action by converging all means of waging war towards gaining a decision. And I think this is where um, the idea of decision, again, gains a lot of traction with contemporary military thinking, you know, the, the thinking that exists today. And he says that uh, the grand tactical object is the destruction of the enemy's plan, which destruction will so reduce his will to win that he must either surrender or accept terms of peace. The strength of this plan, however, that being the enemy's plan that you're trying to do, trying to destroy, 
is divided between the hostile army, the government, and the people, all of which it should, uh, all of which should, if possible, be attacked directly or indir indirectly by force of arms and by political action. And so, again, this idea of, of you know, hybrid warfare, perhaps, you know, this whole of government approach to war, in which you apply uh, directly and indirectly all force, uh, all arms. Uh, all elements of uh, national power and political action against an opponent. This idea was being put forward by uh, J.F.C. Fuller, you know, 19-whatever year this was, 1926. Uh, and so it's just interesting to see certain things like that uh, become, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, new, uh, new ideas, even though the idea is uh, certainly, I'm sure J.F.C. Fuller wasn't the first person to think of this, but he's certainly one of the earlier people to write about this idea. Continuing on with the uh, discussion on decisiveness and decisive points, which um, again I have a, a pretty big problem with as a conceptual construct in an applied sense as well, and I mentioned that in my, my Centers of Gravity episode, but uh, JFC Fuller says that the, the decisive point is not the body of the hostile army, just as politically the decisive point is not the body of the hostile nation. Politically, the decisive point is the will of the hostile nation, and, the, and grand tactically, it is the will of the enemy's commander. So at the operational level, right, at the theater level, at the uh, field army level, it's the, the commander's will. And I think uh, the commander's will, in many cases, isn't just his mental process and his mental will to fight. But when we talk about affecting a commander's will or affecting national will, that means uh, doing things to, you know, what they possess to accomplish their policy or, you know, uh, high military objectives. It's eliminating the things that they have uh, or neutralizing the things, that, the things that they have to accomplish those objectives to then cause them to think, oh, man, I, I don't have the things to do the job I need. Let me ask for more. And if the pressure on the the whole system is so great across all fronts or as many fronts as possible, the idea then is that you're doing the same thing to the political will. And the political will is affected by uh, domestic will, right, uh, as well as uh, political and military uh, decision-making and input from, uh, from those folks there at the senior levels. And so... I think when we peel that down to the most finite level, uh, what we're really talking about is exhaustion. We're trying to exhaust the political will of, opponent, of an opponent by exhausting the things that they have that they can put into the fight to continue to fight, right? Because if they look back and say, I don't have anything left to feed into this fight, so I might as well just go ahead and give up, you know, um, that, that's one way to look at it. And then at the political, or not at the political, but at the military level, you've got the same thing. Hey, I'm out of tanks, I'm out of aircraft, I'm out of artillery, I'm out of you know, long-range precision fires, I'm out of this, I'm out of that. All I've got left are a few small handfuls of uh, you know, light infantry and, and, and mortars you know, for my big field army, or whatever the case may be. So I, I, I can't continue fighting, right? So that... To me, that is affecting the will of the commander, exhausting resources, exhausting the things that a nation, or a state rather, uh, or a military commander can put into the fight to continue fighting towards their political objectives. That is, that is how you affect will. Will isn't some like psychological paralysis thing because, you know, field army did a big oop-de-oop -oop and got into the back area and, and somehow like, did this I dream of genie uh, head nod thing where now the, the military commander is like, oh, I think I'm going to give up. No, that's not the case at all. It's exhausting resources. That's how you affect will, in my assessment. And so I think that that's a critical point here. And I think that when you read Fuller, when you get deep into Fuller, really that's, that's, that's what he's talking about too because he does believe and understand in the interconnectedness of things, right? So the systems theory and systems thinking of war and warfare. And if you understand and appreciate that, then exhaustion becomes far more important, a, a component and an element of the thinking. Fuller also writes that the 
The grand tactics is the battle between two plans energized by two wills and not merely the struggle between two or more military forces. And again, that, that goes to the idea there when he's talking about it's uh, two plans energized by two wills, right? Plans are tied to resources. Resources are linked to exhaustion. Exhaustion is tied to will, right? If you exhaust an enemy's resources, whether that's that field army, you know, the theater, or, you know, strategically all the way back into the, uh, the home of your adversary, that exhaustion is how you affect will. And exhaustion, if will and plans are linked together, resources are central to both there, right? They sit right in the middle and link them. And so by eroding, exhausting, uh, destroying, attriting, denying the ability of resources to get in theater, that is how you affect the will. And that is also tied to the idea of decisiveness. Decisiveness, according to Fuller, is causing the enemy, whether it's the political leadership or the military commander at whatever level, decisiveness is causing them to change their plan or to give up the fight altogether, right? So decisiveness, decisiveness, whether politically or militarily, and militarily at any level, is the changing of a plan, right? Uh, this, this, this plan is no longer tenable, and take plan at, again, whatever level that is, whether that's a, a micro-level fight or a large-scale offensive. So you've got that, or... It's the just the general acquiescence uh, of a force uh, or a you know a, a political body's willingness to participate in a conflict. So those are the two elements of decisiveness, and that term is thrown around way too much today, in an incorrect context. And so I think that's another key point that Fuller pulls out here, is that decisiveness isn't just the cool word that we use when we want to sound like we're doing something cool or something tough, but it's really forcing the change of a plan or forcing uh, the adversary to give up the fight altogether. Moving on from decisiveness, uh, I think one little point here that he makes that I think is terrific um, is that he says, there is no intrinsic difference between war and peace, the difference being one of degree. And uh, I, I really like that because today so many people uh, try and bring this idea forward that uh, this this you know, gray space, this this gray zone activity, this slight little difference between war and peace is something new, you know, and again, JFC Fuller in 1926 is, is writing that there is no intrinsic difference between peace and war, the difference being one in degree. Again, so if, uh, if we all just take a step back and read a little bit of military theory, we'll understand that a lot of these ideas that we think are nascent today aren't necessarily nascent and have been addressed by theorists in the past. We just need to crack open a book, uh, to borrow a phrase from my friend uh, uh, Mick at the Dead Prussian podcast, uh, Mick Cook, and we need to crack open a book and read some theory and get familiar with, with the ideas of war and warfare. Theory is not some nasty thing from the past or some nasty thing that uh, that uh, isn't useful. Again, if we go back to what, you know, Mearsheimer said in How States Think, he talks about the importance of theory to rational action, right? There's theory is a basis, a backbone, a set of ideas, a hypothesis about how the world works that we rely on. Uh, and then we, we work to prove or disprove that theory. And so again, military theorists like JFC Fuller, uh, for instance, are very important uh, and we need to go back and reread their books because a lot of the ideas that we're struggling with today can be found in there. Carrying on, uh, he says, uh, talking about, now we're going to get into the, the mechanics a bit of warfare. He says that uh, we must obtain three physical elements of war, namely protection, offensive action, and movement. And again, because of his writings on armored uh, warfare, you know, movement is critical to his idea of understanding how warfare works. He says, uh, building upon what he had just said, he said the three physical elements of war, moving, guarding, and hitting. So the three physical elements of war, so the basic fundamental things that a, a military does when it's engaged in war, moving, guarding, and hitting, right? So moving uh, isn't the same thing as maneuver. 
Moving is physically being able to move. That is an element of war that he places at the top. Guarding, right? So protective activity, that includes, you know, things like defense. You know, then we talk about offense, defense. That's defense. That's deception. That's all the different things that we try and rope into all these different war fighting functions. And he talks about hitting, right? Hitting is offensive activity. Hitting is striking. Hitting is anything that involves uh, basically moving out from behind the shield, right? If we think in terms of guarding being a shield and hitting being, you know, the lance, the sword, any kind of thing that, that reaches out from behind that defensive uh, guarding thing and strikes an opponent. And so, again, when we talk about that idea to today's capabilities, you know, that's land forces, that's long-range precision fires, that's joint strike capability, all those things rolled up into that idea of hitting. And so I think that that idea is a very valid idea to carry forward. Move, guard, and hit are essentially, and again, like Fuller says, the three physical elements of war. And those are the building blocks from which warfare should pivot. And tying that idea to strategy, he says... And I quote in brief, the whole of strategy consists in placing an army or the, ver- or the various parts of an army in such positions that tactical movements may be carried out with the greatest economy of force. Uh, you know, he doesn't say that uh, the whole of strategy is telling the boss uh, what, what, what they want to hear or, or making some fancy slides. It's, it's fundamentally about placing an army you know, and all its components, an army in this case, I think you can extrapolate that idea out and say, well, what he really means is, is a joint force, you know, this, so if we're going to get into the whole, this isn't just army centric, we got to talk joint, you know, it's placing the various components of a joint force in such a position that the tactical movements may be carried out with the greatest economy of force. And again, economy of force is tied to that idea that we talked about momentarily, or previously about the resources, the plan, and the will, right? The reason economy of force is so important is because war war is expensive, right? And so things are finite. And again, if things are finite, then uh, denying, destroying, uh, disrupting the ability of those things to get into the fight is critical for an army and a policy uh, maker uh, when they when they approach warfare, and so again, the strategy, the whole of strategy, consists of placing an army. Let's change that to joint force. Placing a joint force, or the various parts of an army or joint force, in in modern context, in such a position that tactical movements may be carried out with the greatest economy of force, so that you don't exhaust yourself, you don't exhaust your own force, you don't exhaust your own national base. Of power, you know, where do you generate the uh, the personnel, the weaponry, the equipment that you need, right? So, economy of force is fundamental to the idea of rational action, to decisiveness in war and warfare, and to strategy. Linked to the idea of exhaustion and resources, and uh, the economic theory of rational action and economy of force is time. Uh, right, so like we have to understand time, and Fuller is one of the first people that I see that really does a good job of discussing time as it relates to uh, war and warfare. Uh, for instance, he says time is an all-embracing condition, and condition, and in war, more so even than in peace. Time must be reckoned in minutes, and not only from a military point of view, but from an economic one as well. And so that's that's an interesting point too, because. Uh, one of the other few theorists in the 20th century uh, to make any kind of uh, impact whatsoever. And I would say, hell, I'd go as far as to say one of the few theorists of the 20th, uh, 20th century period, Robert Leonard, uh, his book, Time, uh, Fighting by Minutes, Time and the Art of War, you could almost say is, is, <laughs> is a direct lift from that passage. And uh, when you read Fuller's book, or correction, when you read Leonard's book, uh, Fighting by Minutes, you find a, a great deal of carryover between uh, Fuller's book here and, and the ideas of, of Robert Leonard. And so that's part of the reason I think Robert Leonard's book, which we'll probably discuss in the future as well, uh, and we may even try and have uh, Robert Leonard on the podcast, 
But that book is so good because it carries forward many of the ideas of Fuller, uh, but applies them in a 20th century context, uh, or in a late 20th century context, since Fuller is writing the 20th century as well. Uh, but things have changed so much between that time. Uh, he continues, though, Fuller continues when he's talking about time. Uh, he says that the economy of time becomes not only a military, not only of military, but also of economic importance. Uh, and so he talks about that as it relates to generalship. And he says, one of the greatest problems in generalship is how the how to utilize time to the best advantage. And this demands perfectly orga a perfectly organized instrument in which friction, which is the enemy of uh, military time, is reduced to the lowest possible level. So I want to reread that again once more for some clarity, and then we're going to talk about that for a few minutes. One of the greatest problems in generalship is how to utilize time to the best advantage, and this demands a perfectly organized instrument in which friction, which is the enemy of military time, is reduced to the lowest possible level. So this point's fascinating to me because one of the ideas that, uh, I don't know if it's like grown out of the global war on terrorism, uh, but you see this idea that, you know, uh, the acme of generalship is waiting to the last possible moment to make a decision. Uh, but what's ironic about that is waiting to the last possible moment to make a decision is often, um, it leads you to, to make one decision, in, which in turn isn't really making a decision, uh, because all the other decisions have been eroded by time which forces the decision maker into a single course of action. And so it almost causes that senior uh, military leader to wash their hand of the responsibility of decision making, which uh, is, is really the point of generalship, right? Everybody else is, uh, is an advisor uh, to the general, and the general is the one who makes the decision on, you know, go, no go, or whatever the case may be. And so the irony of this idea that uh, we're going to wait to the last possible moment to make a decision, well, by that point, all the all the potential options for decision have almost been eroded into a binary black and white yes or no decision, which really isn't a decision at all. And so Fuller says that that's one of the greatest problems in generalship is how to properly utilize time to the best advantage. Um, and... It's just uh, one of those cr critical components um, to military thinking that is, I think, often overlooked today and discarded as not necessarily a useful idea. But in reality, uh, again, when we talk about the relationship between all these ideas and, you know, exhaustion, economic uh, theory, economic uh, theory of rational decision-making, um, economy of force, uh, the relationship between plans and will, all these things are tied to resources, and resources are tied to time, right? The more time we waste, the more resources are consumed, and, you know, just uh, an army being in the field is, is a resource, right? Because that, that drains the political uh, will to degrees that uh, it wouldn't otherwise do if you didn't have your own troops there. And so these are important things uh, to understand about war and warfare. Time is critical Fuller says that it's, you know, he says superiority of time is so important a factor in war that it frequently becomes the governing condition. And then taking time down to a, a, a tactical consideration, Fuller says in war it takes time to gain superiority in anything and time is nearly always at a discount. Consequently, we find although minimal surprisals may be accomplished by seizing opportunity, the possibility of effecting major surprise depends mainly on the forecasts and preparations which we have made during the days of peace. And that's an important thing to understand when we talk about both, uh, you know, um, exhaustion, but then also that, that idea of economic theory of rational action and systems thinking. If we wait to the last possible moment to make a decision, uh, we're getting in the way of time uh, being able to do uh, the positive things that it does for a, for, for a military force or a policymaker, right? Um, it allows you to see options. Time, foresight allows you to see options. It allows you to prepare. It allows you to prepare for multiple options, whereas the absence of time or waiting to the last possible moment to make a decision quickly erodes that. And then tying that even to a, a more finite tactical level, uh, you know, 
Fuller says, The object of the offensive is not to kill, wound, or capture, but to establish a condition which will permit of policy taking effect. And again, so this idea that uh, that time is important um, because it allows a, a military leader or policymaker to get in and use military uh, operations or use force in such a way that it allows them to cause a decision to be made on the part of the adversary. It causes them to say, hey, I need to change my plan or hey, I'm out of this fight altogether, right? And that those two those two elements of decision, of decisiveness, go from policymaker all the way down to the most finite tactical leader that's engaged in a, a small engagement or skirmish. And so that is uh, the, the fundamental thing to understand. And again, those decisions, decisiveness in most cases, is driven by uh, big picture when we step back, the exhaustion of resources. If, if resources are no longer there, a policymaker or a military leader is going to say, hey, I've got to change my plan, or hey, I, I, I'm quitting this fight. Uh, and part of that, too, can be offset through the use of coalitions and alliances, right? That's one of the big components, or one of the big reasons those elements of warfare are so prevalent today, is they, they help assuage a lot of the problems that come with resource deprivation and staving off exhaustion. The more resources that you have available, whether it's your own or whether it's borrowing from a friend or a, uh, you know, a, a coalition or al alliance member, all those elements help offset that loss of uh, resources, which staves off uh, decisiveness, right? It staves off decisiveness for you, or it also accelerates decisiveness for an adversary. If you can keep that opponent from gaining or maintaining uh, some sort of coalition or alliance, uh, then you have the ability to fight that individual uh, state or that actor uh, by itself in a more vulnerable position. And this idea is uh, really prevalent if you step back and look at uh, how uh, Napoleon and uh, his his strategy of central position uh, operated. It, it, what I just described is almost exactly uh, how Bonaparte thought about fighting coalitions, right? You fight the closest or weakest actor first, you knock them out of the fight, you break that coalition down into component elements so that they don't have the ability to fight like a, a, you know, a more uh, grandiose, complex, adaptive system that is, is more responsive to, uh, to shock and to resource consumption. And you break it down into the component elements and you fight each element of that, that larger system. You break the system and you fight each element by itself. And uh, that, that is a central component to what uh, Fuller talks about. And that should be no surprise either if you understand JFC Fuller. His nickname was Boney. Uh, and that was based off his uh, infatuation, for lack of a better word, uh, with Napoleon Bonaparte. And so that's why you probably see a lot of uh, Bonapartish ideas and concepts within uh, Fuller's writing. And so I think that's where we'll close for today. Uh, when we think about, uh, when we talk about this book, I think uh, to step back and just uh, conclude the idea here uh, and the key points that I think Fuller makes is, uh, so systems theory, right, that permeates Fuller's thinking in this book, but then also essentially all, all his other writing, uh, which we'll get into more as we, we continue this podcast. But systems thinking and systems theory and the idea that uh, adversaries and conflict combatants operate on this idea of systems theory. And the first principle of, of warfare and war in a systems theory-dominated uh, approach to thinking about warfare is don't die, right? And so you're not going to operate in a way that puts you in an existential crisis, nor is your adversary. So to think that your adversary is going to roll up and say, holy cow, look who it is. And throw up their arms and be like, you know what? Uh, we're fighting uh, whoever this is, and so we're just going to go ahead and quit. That is 100% incorrect. And uh, to think that you're going to show up and be greeted as a, as a victor or a liberator by a uh, potentially hostile nation and its people is borderline uh, criminal, but certainly idiotic. And so that's, uh, that's an important thing to take away from Fuller and his ideas here. Uh, time, the centrality of time to everything in war and warfare, 
is 100% uh, threaded throughout Fuller's ideas. Time is a central uh, animating feature of systems theory and rationality and economic, uh, you know, distribution of, uh, of things is, is 100% part of this idea. And resource exhaustion, exhaustion in general, uh, is one of the, th the key points to rationality, to time, to systems theory, and to decisiveness, right? So changing of a plan or causing an opponent to quit, those generally are done through not magic oop-de-oops uh, or magic uh, moves to the rear that cause in the enemy to throw up their hands in the air and say, oh man, you got me. Or rapidly moving through some micro-tactical decision-making process quicker than your opponent. Big picture, in battles and operations and campaigns and wars, decision is driven through uh, resource exhaustion. When you no longer have things to continue fighting, you no longer have the will to continue to fight because you can't uh, keep fighting because you have nothing left to help you fight. And so that, I think, is a critical element we have to take away here. Uh, and then finally, um, I think a couple points here. So basic elements, move, strike, protect. He says, last, last passage of the book, uh, the very last thing he says is, uh, and this is a line he borrows from Bonaparte. He says, The whole art of war consists in a well-reasoned and extremely circumspect defensive, followed by a rapid and audacious attack. And then the last three words of the book are move, or, or correction, are guard, move, and hit. And uh, I've borrowed that to a degree and refined that myself in my own writing. Uh, published a paper not too long ago uh, with the Association of the United States Army. Uh, and I said I used move, strike, protect, which is uh, Leonard Robert Leonard's version of the same idea. You find that move, strike, protect in all his books, Fighting by Minutes, uh, Principles of War for the Information Age, and The Art of Maneuver. And then the last point before we close out here uh, today is I think it's important, and Fuller beats the drum on this and everything that he writes, but I've already mentioned a lot of it at the beginning of the podcast. It's okay to think, right? Uh, thinking is not a bad thing. Thinking is not a uh, negative thing, right? Questioning an institution and its beliefs and its doctrines and its ways of doing business does not make somebody disloyal. In fact, I would argue uh, there's fewer higher forms of loyal, uh, loyalty than to question uh, how we're doing things, how an institution is doing things, uh, because... Doing so means that you truly care about how the organization is operating to the point that you're willing to say, hey, you know, this, this may not be working right, as opposed to blindly just stepping forward and continuing to do things that may or may not be correct or effective. But it's also important to remember that uh, institutions don't like to be challenged, right? If you're challenging an institution or its self-identity, um, or the self-identity of people within the institution, um, you have to know that, uh, that that comes with consequence. And so while it is okay to think from a theoretical standpoint, thinking, speaking, writing uh, can also generate blowback that negatively affects you. And uh, as we saw, or as we'll see uh, in, the, in our podcast with uh, Major General Retired Pat Donahoe, um, who, you know, in conversations with me, we had talked about how General Eisenhower and General Patton had both gotten critiqued, but Eisenhower had gotten critiqued even harder uh, by the, the chief of the infantry at the time, which was a major general, uh, Charles Farnsworth. And, uh, he you know, he he beat up uh, Eisenhower pretty good, told him not to, uh, to be writing about anything, because Eisenhower had been writing about tanks and the potential for tanks and warfare and how to do armored warfare with Patton. And Farnsworth had told him, hey, look, you know, you need to only write things that align with accepted doctrine. And, uh, you know, Farnsworth ended up being proven wrong pretty quick, uh, you know, once the Second World War rolled around, that, uh, you know, Eisenhower and Patton were on the right track in terms of thinking about the future of war. And uh, Farnsworth, who, you know, his self-identity uh, was being questioned, the institution's self-identity was being questioned by two 
lowly captains at the time. You know, what did they know and who were they, you know? Well, I would argue, and I think history's proven correct, they were quite loyal institutional members, and uh, their questioning of accepted norms and practices wasn't out of disloyalty, but out of a very high form of loyalty. And so I just, uh, I think it's important to to make sure that that's, uh, that's clearly understood. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, the house always wins. And so questioning an institution, while theoretically uh, is a good practice and a, a, a true sign of loyalty, um, if the institution is not welcoming to that critique, uh, just know that the institution always wins. And I think JFC Fuller found that out a couple times along the way. Granted, he, you know, he ends up retiring from the British Army as a, as a major general himself. Um, but at many points throughout his career, he had uh, run into some serious problems based off his questioning of the institution and uh, not wanting to necessarily do the things that he was being asked. So it's uh, just a, an important final caution uh, before we close out here. So again, uh, The Foundations of the Science of War by J.F.C. Fuller, and that's the, uh, the book we discussed today. If you want to read a really good biography on J.F.C. Fuller, there is a biography written by Brian Holden Reed called J.F.C. Fuller, uh, Fuller, Military Thinker. Um, and that's a, a, a great biography uh, on Fuller. And then also a great podcast was released on J.F.C. Fuller called uh, How Britain Invented, Then Ignored Blitzkrieg. It was published in December uh, 2019 on the podcast um, Cautionary Tales. And so you can find that on any uh, podcast provider. But uh, that's that's one of my favorites. It really tells the story of J.F.C. Fuller. It also parallels uh, you know Reed's book. If you've read Reed's book, you can see the similarities between the two. I'll put a link to both uh that both those those references as well as the foundations of the science of war in the show notes uh but with that thank you for listening to revolution and military affairs i'm amos fox it's uh, been a pleasure to chat with you today and uh thank you for your time It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.